Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2 and verses 16 through 19. Colossians chapter 2 verses 16 through 19. I hope you have had a a good week. I hope it's been a productive week for you. I hope you spent time in prayer uh, for yourself that you might grow in the Lord prayer for our country that as a whole we might turn to the Lord and lean into him. I pray that you've been in prayer for your lost neighbors. I pray that you have been engaged in pursuing his kingdom. There are any number of things that can distract us over the course of life. And in the most trying times, it's so incredibly important that we not lose our focus, that we not lose the direction that we're headed in, that we not be distracted. I can think of a couple of times uh, when I was growing up as a kid that when my dad began to entrust me with, with more things, some things that, that if I wasn't paying attention, that if I wasn't remaining focused, that, that he might be hurt. I remember one of the first times uh, that he did this, we had a really big tree that had to come down. I mean, it was this massive tree, and if it fell the wrong direction, it would, it would land on the barn, and so we, we chained off onto it, and I got to sit in the tractor while he ran the chainsaw this time, so I'm putting a, pulling a bind on it, right? And I'm getting ready to go, and I have to be ready to pull with the time to pull, and I'm going to make sure it goes the right direction. But at the time, I sat there, and I began to watch a butterfly sail across the sky. No, not really. But in that moment, I began to think, just kind of in all of these sensational things, was what if I didn't pull the right direction? What if at the last minute, I jerked the wheel to the left, and it just crushed the whole barn? And, And then somehow my dad ran into the barn to pull out something, and now I was fatherless. And I didn't have a barn. Double whammy. We only just merely nicked the barn. And I don't think that was my fault. I think that was a shoddy job in uh, being a lumberjack on the part of my dad. But nevertheless, a history will determine who was faultless. Uh, or I will in this case because I'm up here. And so nevertheless, in that instant, it gives us an indication that it's so incredibly important not to be distracted and not to let go, not to grow weary in the midst of a pursuit. Now Paul has, right before this section of scripture, given the church there in Colossae, and he's given us an incredible truth. Now I want you to go back and look at it because the degree to which we understand and apply this has terrific bearing on our application of 16 through 19. Look at what he wrote, uh, just back up in 14 and 15. He said, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So in essence, if you are in Jesus, you have been set free. If you are in Jesus, don't find yourself living enslaved to anything else. If you are in Jesus, don't allow yourself once again to be enslaved to the powers and authorities that operate and rule and and bring disaster and discord in this world. If you are in Jesus, live as if you are in Jesus. So Paul recognizes that there's a terrific number of people there in their community that are seeking to distract uh, the church there in Colossae. And you remember this is kind of what we talked about in the beginning, that they want them to do certain things or do certain things this way. And, and 
in them doing those things, and in them doing those things this way, they would find themselves being in a better relationship with God. They'd find themselves being free. But the reality, Paul writes, is, is when you find yourself doing these things to garner and to gain a better relationship with God, you've not set yourself free. You've placed yourself in slavery. Let's look at 16 through 19 together. Paul writes, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word can set us free. God, you have set us free ultimately in Jesus. And, and then occasionally we find ourselves living life in bondage, taking on restrictions, taking on qualifications, taking on the yoke of slavery once again, finding ourselves living in a false reality, creating false dichotomies. God, I pray this morning that if that is us, that you would set us free. I pray, I pray, God, that if our hearts are hearts that are beholden to restrictions, that God, I pray that if our hearts are hearts that long for legalism, that God, I pray that if our hearts are hearts that long for rules and guidelines, that we would jettison them and live lives set free by your Spirit. God, would you set us free in this place? Would you cause us to live unencumbered lives dutifully unto you? God, in so doing, would you cause us to be impactful in our community? God, those things that you have set us free from don't allow us once again to take up the yoke of slavery for. Father, would you guide us? Would you bring your spirit into this place to illumine your word and apply it richly to our hearts that in so doing, our lives might be able to be lived impactfully amongst the lost of our community and beyond? We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So look here, Paul opens up this passage, and, and this is probably one of the places that we would see people typically go to to proof text the idea that nobody gets to judge me, right? Nobody gets to judge me, I get to own my truth, you get to own your truth, nobody gets to weigh in on, 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 on what either one of these things are, but, but quickly read this carefully, Paul is, is not entering even into this debate. He says, there, let therefore no one pass judgment on you, and then a really specific thing. He says, in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moons or Sabbath. In essence, he says, listen, there are those that really, really like Christianity. They really like how these things put forward, but they want to introduce some things to make it a little bit spicier. They want to introduce some things to make it a little bit more exciting. And so they've delved into the Old Testament, perhaps, and they've delved into paganism a little bit. And what they've brought from both of these things are dietary restrictions and, and restrictions based upon the calendar, and they thought that the implementation of these things will help Christianity and your relationship with God to be more robust. And so what they would do is they'd go out into the community, and they would tell people, John, I see you over there, and I see you have a fantastic walk with Jesus, but have you considered, John, that you should give up milk to grow closer to Jesus. And John says, well, you know, I haven't really thought about that. I do have a little bit of a lactose thing going. I guess I'll go with that. 
And they'll say, John, it's not just a lactose thing, and that's not just the reason you need to give this up. You need to give this up because this, the presence of it in your life will keep you from ever being able to be close to God. And John says, really? I, just, I didn't know that was the Holy Spirit. I just thought that was IBS. And, and so John gives it up all the while seeking to grow closer to the Lord. And they do that with food, and they do that with the calendar, and they do that with all these various things. And what Paul is telling them is, don't put yourself in a place where somebody could bring in, bring in these external restrictions, place them upon you, and, and mandate the fact that your relationship with Jesus is invalid if these things aren't included. Now, you would look at these things and say, listen, I'm not making decisions on terms of diet that people bring to me. I recognize I'm set free. I'm not making decisions based upon uh, what the moon looks like and all these various things, although my kids are nuts on a full moon. I'm not making decisions on these things. And I, I recognize that there are no restrictions to my relationship with God on the basis of these outside provisions. But I would submit that we do. They may not be food and drink and, and calendrical, but they're real. All the time, we enter into debates and discussions of, of all the external realities that have to line up for somebody's life in order for us to consider their Christianity real and valid and appropriate. And these things come from our own personal perspectives. And so perhaps this morning you walked in or you're online and you're listening, and in your mind, whether or not you've ever articulated it out loud, whether or not you've ever said it to anybody, firmly implanted in your mind is the reality that if you are not a Republican, you cannot be a Christian. If you are not a Republican, you cannot be a Christian. Or conversely, you might say, listen, I don't know if I'd go that far. I know some really good independents. But if you are a Democrat, certainly you cannot be a Christian. And then on the other perspective, we see people who are Democrats say, listen, if you aren't a Democrat, then you don't care for the poor, you don't care for the marginalized, you don't care for those at risk. All you care about is the economy. All you care about is, is white people. All you care about are the rich. And we see both sides tearing each other apart, arguing, insisting upon their version of reality, their perspective on this moment, and saying, if you don't hold to my perspective, my view of reality, and my political party, you can't love Jesus. And some of us believe this. Some of us believe this, not just tacitly, but we believe this to the point of endorsing it in everything, in everything we say, in every engagement we have with somebody, in every way we view somebody comes through the lens of this reality. We say, you can't love Jesus if this is true of you. Man, I've read the Bible a few times, and I always come across verses that I think, I, this wasn't in there last year, but listen, I read it decidedly and decisively looking for these things, and I never saw them. Why do we keep placing these restrictions on ourselves and upon others? It's because we want everyone to line up with the way that we see the world. In terms of our understanding and our response to COVID-19, uh, we have the mask wearers and the non-mask wearers, and apparently the mask wearers are those who only live in fear and not in faith, and the, and the non-mask wearers are those who love Jesus and long to see him soon and think everybody else is a lunatic. And we want to see the reality and we want to apply these things. And in some sense, the enemy is making these restrictions and guidelines for who can be close to Jesus and who can't be. 
And we've allowed these things to so infiltrate the church, to infiltrate our speech, and to infiltrate, infiltrate our speech on social media platforms that we are radically losing our attempts and ability to rightly engage lost people. Because we can't even civilly disagree with one another. Now listen to this. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you, governing your speech. This means whenever you engage in hateful or harassing speech or attitudes, let me characterize this, you are an unpleasant person. You're engaging in sin, and there's right reason for the church to look at you and say, you are sinful. And your response doesn't get to be, I was just, you know, just voicing my opinion. No, you are being sinful. And you're directing your sin to other people made in the image and the likeness of God. As image bearers, they get to disagree with you. And we cannot place restrictions on salvation according to our perspective on any of these topics. And we see all of these various restrictions. The most recent to come out, and, and, and praise God, at least it brought down the COVID nonsense for a little while. The most recent to come about was everybody's response into what happened to George Floyd. White Christians posting videos over and over and over again disproportionately of black people saying racism isn't real. Wanting to win people to our perspective, wanting to win people to the way that you see the world. And anytime they disagree with you, you say, what's wrong with you? You're a moron. We divide over all of these. If you march, you hate people. If you don't march, you're complicit in racism. If you support protests, then you hate police officers. If you say we have good and loving and kind police officers, then you hate black people. If you support black people and you're a white person, you're just virtue signaling. All these various things, there's no place for us to win. He would not have us behave this way. You want to see your heart be broken? Search for each member of this church and just go through and read their social media engagement over the last couple of weeks. As a pastor, you're breaking my heart. We repeatedly engage in harassment in the things we post, trying to win people to our perspective, all the while losing legitimacy for placing a foothold against lostness. Please, for the love of God, stop. We would be so much better off if you'd remain silent and in prayer that in boisterousness and in posting things that no one's going to read except for your incredibly small footprint. Love people well. Disagree with them strongly but lovingly. If you want to gain a voice in seeing somebody's opinion change, don't post something. Ask them to go to lunch. Love them and say, man, can we, can we talk about this? Can you help me understand your perspective? I want to help you understand my perspective. When did we lose the ability to engage in civil discourse and disagreement? As Christians, as Christians we should be advocates for this. This church there in Colossae had all of these people coming to them saying, look, don't eat this, don't drink this, don't do this, don't do this. And we're doing the same things. Please stop. Please stop. You're embarrassing our church, you're embarrassing me, and you're not living up to honoring our Lord in the way that you speak and treat people. Please, for the love of God, stop.
There's nothing redeemable in most of our actions recently. But Paul addresses these things. He addresses the food, the drink, the regard of festival or the new moon or the Sabbath. And he says, listen, even those things have the appearance of good. These things are a mere shadow. He says, but the substance belongs to Christ. These food, these drink, this regard of festival or new moon. He says, listen, these things have the appearance of being good and being an end, but these things are merely a shadow. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. We'll read a few verses out of Hebrews 10. Verse 1 says, For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of this reality, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. So Paul says, listen, it's not that the law is bad, but recognize this, that the law is merely a shadow of those things which are to come. In verses 5 and 6, he says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And then finally, in verses 8 through 10, he says, When he said above, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and in burnt offerings and sin offerings, these offering accorded to the Lord. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And that by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Paul wants to set the church there in Colossae free by telling them doing these things doesn't get you closer to God. Though what gets you closer to God is the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf and solely the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf and the sacrifice of Jesus on behalf of those you disagree with. Amen? They're a shadow, but the reality and the substance belongs to Christ. So he tells him, listen, let no one condemn you. Don't live in condemnation, seeking to adhere to these realities. It's untenable, it's unmanageable, you can't do it, and you shouldn't. And then he shifts in verse 18 to the second command. He says, let no one disqualify you. 1 Corinthians 1, 9 and 24 speaks of this issue, and it says, do you not know that we all race in such a way as to receive the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 9 and 24 is that in the midst of a race, you're trying to win. You're not merely trying to participate. And when he comes in here in Colossians 2 and verse 17, or verse 18 rather, he says, listen, you got to win this race. Don't seek to be disqualified in it. Don't allow someone to disqualify you. Don't allow someone to so distract you, to so take your eyes off of the Lord, that you find yourself no longer engaging in winning the race. There's so many things currently, and in the future, and in the past, that have always sought to distract Christians. We cannot give up at this time. We cannot allow ourselves, and, and by virtue, our children, to see us distracted, to see us live in fear and panic, to see us live in the midst of discord and wrangling, and, and so be disqualified themselves. Our response at this time is leading a path. Will we be bold in following Jesus? Paul says that they're seeking to disqualify them. These heretics are seeking to disqualify them in terms of four different approaches. The first approach is insisting on asceticism in the worship of angels. The second is going on in detail about visions. 
The third really relates to both of those. He says, listen, such a person is puffed up beyond reason by his sensuous mind. Effectively this, he is crazy. He doesn't know what he's talking about, but that hasn't stopped him from talking about it. He's puffed up. There's no substance to it. And then lastly, and we'll look at it at some length, not holding fast to the head. But let's look at this first one. He says, insisting on asceticism in the worship of angels. Don't let anybody distract you by insisting that you have some internal experience with Jesus. And until you have that experience, until your, your, your recognition of reality comes into submission to that, you don't have a right relationship with them. We see that this happens even now. Now, maybe you'd say, listen, I don't know anybody around me that's insisting on asceticism, you know, uh, not wearing makeup, not eating very much, dressing very poorly, and looking mealy-mouthed all the time. I don't know anybody that's engaged in these things, and I don't know anybody further that's, that's advocating that we worship angels. And I would say, that's good. It sounds like you're keeping good company. I appreciate that for you, and I'd like to be your friend as well. But certainly, we find in the midst of these things, Christians given to any number of false pursuits. Ed Stetzer, uh, writing back for the Dallas Morning News, offered this piece on Christians and conspiracy theories. He says, at their root, conspiracy theories are illogical and embarrassing. The audacity in recent COVID-19 conspiracy theories demand that the President Donald Trump, Republicans and Democrats in Congress, the media, the scientific community are all in league together. More outlandishly, they ascribe the virus to secret plans to end religious liberty to con and connect a potential vaccine to the mark of the beast and loop in 5G towers as a bizarre bonus. And unfortunately, when you do statistical analysis across Christians and their social media platforms, you'll find that Christians, by and large, believe in conspiracy theories more than other measurable segments of our population. It's embarrassing. Now, we're not here to argue the why, but, but we recognize in the midst of these things, we not, might not be drawn to asceticism in the worship of angels, but we certainly find ourselves drawn to the sensational. We find ourselves in, in Christian circles, oftentimes we are proponents of those who have fantastic experiences. This is why we find ourselves uh, buying books in mass of people who've had near-death experiences. Even though we recognize that God's word is legitimate, that it alone is the right course for pursuing him and knowing him, we want to live through the reality of others' experiences. Somebody dies and they see Jesus, I want to live in that reality, and I subjugate my view of the Bible to the things they say. In essence, what Paul is saying here is these things are empty. Pay attention to what scripture says. We find even within the broader umbrella of evangelicalism, those who would be advocates and say that if you do not speak in tongues, you are not a Christian. And what is the conservative evangelical Southern Baptist response? Tongues are hogwash, they don't exist. But we read through 1 Corinthians and we find that there is validity to both of these things. There is validity to the manifestation of tongues for the Christian. And to have such a knee-jerk reaction to say that they're not valid, that they're hogwash, that they're lunatic, that they're people who've had too much to drink and showed up in a worship service is not a legitimate place to stand. So we have to find a way to work through the midst of these things. We don't live subjected to experience. We live subjected to our salvation. Amen? Be it tongues, be it baptism in the Spirit, be it Christian experientialism, 
those who insist on these things and that you can't be a Christian unless you adhere to this sudden experience of reality, those people are living an outlier in a disingenuous faith in Jesus and we should not regard them well. He says they go on and on about visions. Paul had probably the most sensational vision recorded in the New Testament by an apostle outside of John. And Paul in 2 Corinthians in chapter 12 He describes it not in terms of his personal experience, but he describes it rather using this rhetorical tool to say, such a man. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 3 and 4, he says, And I know this man who is caught up into paradise, whether in body or out of body, I do not know, God knows. In essence, let's not get into debate about this, it doesn't matter. Listen to what he says. He heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. The gist of what Paul exposes there is let's not be caught up in fanciful tales. Let us focus on Jesus. And this is what he calls his church here in Colossae. He says they go on and on about visions that they don't even understand. They have this inflated sense of reality. They're speaking out of their mind. They're a lunatic. Disregard them. But the most damaging thing they do is in verse 19. It says, not holding fast to the head. Not holding fast to the head. Back in Colossians in chapter 1 and verses 17 and 18, he says, he is before all things, and him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him, that in everything, he might be preeminent. We must hold fast to Jesus. Sadly, as we take a survey of, of, of Christianity, sadly, as we take a survey of our culture, it wants to hold fast to so many things, but not hold fast to Jesus. It wants to hold fast to all the various things that it's advocating. Let's hold fast to hope. Let's hold fast to joy. Let's hold fast to our finances. Let's hold fast to a better economy. Let's hold fast that this election will go this way. What does he call us to? He says, hold fast to Christ. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were going to see Jesus after his death. They approached the tomb. They're greeted by the angel and they're told the tomb is empty. And they're given direction to go back and tell the disciples that he's risen. And in the midst of going back, in Matthew 28 and 8 and 9 it says, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. The text tells us, it says, they came and took a hold of his feet and they worshipped him. The response on seeing Jesus again was to fall at his feet and to grab a hold of them and to not let go and from that posture to engage in worship. And this is where we need to go again. Falling on our knees, falling on our faces, grabbing the feet of Jesus and being unwilling to relent and worship This is the posture of his church. This is the posture of his people. This is where we find unity. This is where we find purpose. This is where our world finds healing. At the feet of Jesus, caught in adoration and worship. Now look at what he says here. He says, holding fast to the head. It is from the head that the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments. Don't miss what he's saying. 
It's not just the church as an entity which has to hold fast. It is each of its component members. It is necessary for you to hold fast to the head. You are indispensable. You are required. You are necessary. We need each other. We need each other in this church. We need each other in all the various churches of our community. We need each other in all the various churches of the world. When we hold to the head together, we nourish one another. This is why Paul spent so much time in 1 Corinthians talking about the interrelationship of the body. He says, the hand doesn't say to the foot, I don't need you. We need each other. We are nourished as we minister to one another. We are nourished as we care for one another. And praise God, we are nourished as we bear one another. Some of us lately have been insufferable. We have been nearly unbearable and unloving. And praise God for you. We need you in your sinfulness. We need you in your wickedness. You remind us of the grace and mercy of God that we've received. And I pray to God that when others of us experience periods of our life when we're engaging in sinfulness, when people in society would look at us and cast us to the side and say, you're unworthy of being loved by God. God doesn't need you. Our church doesn't want you. We don't want anything to do with, us, with you because you're dragging us down. I pray that when we're in that moment, you would remember how we treated you in that moment, that we love you, that we care for you, that we long for you to return. We want to see this fruit of the Spirit alive and, 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 and beautiful and, 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 and flowing out of your life we're only going to grow with the growth that comes from God and he has made it so he has hamstringed the church so that we need each other and we can't do it without each other it's beautiful it's terrible I love it and I hate it it would be so much easier so much better from my vantage point if the small-minded, hateful people with a lack of vision and no appetite for God's glory would pick up and leave and go elsewhere. But you know what? He doesn't give us that permission. He doesn't give us that freedom. He doesn't give us that release. And occasionally I begrudge him for it. And he breaks my heart all over again. We need each other. And I pray to God we can remind each other to hold fast to the head. I pray to God in the midst of so many things that are distracting us right now that seek to draw our attention and focus right now and we're so hell-bent on our own agenda that God would cause us to let these things go to pursue Him and to bring our brothers and sisters along. This and this alone honors him. Let me pray for us. Father, you're good and righteous. We are myopic. We run wayward. We can be unloving. 
and I'm consistently bewildered why this was your plan to redeem the world. But in it, I see your grace, I see your mercy, I see your long-suffering compassion. God, would you break our hearts? Would you stop us in our actions? Would you be glorified in our midst? Father, we ask that the lost of our community and in our relationships would submit themselves to you. That they would see through all the warts and the mudslinging of the church to your son Jesus, its head. And that they would fall madly in love with him. Jesus, who loved them in their sinfulness, who nailed their sins above his cross and willingly took the wrath destined for them upon himself. The Jesus who suffered and died for them, who you raised to life, conquering sin and death, that they would love that Jesus. That they would cry out to him for forgiveness and for salvation. We submit these things to you in his name. Amen.